Chapter thirty three, part one of Life and Adventures of Martin Chuzzlewit. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Life and Adventures of Martin Chuzzlewit by Charles Dickens. Chapter thirty three Further Proceedings in Eden and a Proceeding Out of It. Martin makes a discovery of some importance. Part One. From Mr. Model to Eden is an easy and natural transition. Mr. Model, living in the atmosphere of Miss Pecksniff's love, dwelt, if he had but known it, in a terrestrial paradise. The thriving city of Eden was also a terrestrial paradise, upon the showing of its proprietors. The beautiful Miss Pecksniff might have been poetically described as a something too good for man in his fallen and degraded state. That was exactly the character of the thriving city of Eden, as poetically heightened by Zephaniah Scatter, General Choke, and other worthies. Part and parcel of the talons of that great American eagle, which is always airing itself sky-high in purest ether, and never, no, never, never tumbles down with draggled wings into the mud. When Mark Tapley, leaving Martin in the architectural and surveying offices, had effectually strengthened and encouraged his own spirits by the contemplation of their joint misfortunes, he proceeded with new cheerfulness in search of help, congratulating himself as he went along on the enviable position to which he had at last attained. "'I used to think sometimes,' said Mr. Tapley, "'as a desolate island would suit me.' "'but I should only have had myself to provide for there, "'and being naturally a easy man to manage, "'there wouldn't have been much credit in that. "'Now here I've got my partner to take care on, "'and he's something like the sort of man for the purpose. "'I want a man as is always a-sliding off his legs "'when he ought to be on him. "'I want a man as is so low down in the school of life "'that he's always a-making figures of one in his copy-book "'and can't get no further. "'I want a man as is his own great coat and cloak.' "'and is always a-wrapping himself up in himself. "'And I have got him, too,' said Mr. Tapley, "'after a moment's silence. "'What a happiness!' "'He paused to look round, "'uncertain to which of the log-houses he should repair. "'I don't know which to take,' he observed. "'That's the truth. "'They're equally prepossessing outside, "'and equally commodious, no doubt, within. "'Being fitted up with every convenience "'that an alligator in a state of nature "'could possibly require.' Let me see. The citizen has turned out last night lives under water, in the right-hand dog-kennel at the corner. I don't want to trouble him if I can help it, poor man, for he is a melancholy object, a regular settler in every respect. There's a house with a winder, but I am afraid of their being proud. I don't know whether a door ain't too aristocratic, but here goes for the first one. He went up to the nearest cabin and knocked with his hand. Being desired to enter, he complied. "'Neighbor,' said Mark, "'for I am a neighbor, though you don't know me. "'I've come a-begging. "'Hello, hello! "'Am I a-bed and dreaming?' "'He made this exclamation on hearing his own name pronounced, "'and finding himself clasped about the skirts by two little boys, "'whose faces he had often washed, "'and whose suppers he had often cooked, "'on board of that noble and fast-sailing line of packet-ship, the Screw.' "'My eyes is wrong,' said Mark. "'I don't believe em. "'That ain't my fellow-passenger yonder, "'a-nursing her little girl, "'who, I am sorry to see, is so delicate. "'And that ain't her husband as come to New York to fetch her. 
"'Nor these,' he added, looking down upon the boys. "'Ain't them two young shavers as was so familiar to me, "'though they are uncommon like em, that I must confess.' "'The woman shed tears, and very joy to see him. "'The man shook both his hands and would not let them go. "'The two boys hugged his legs. "'The sick child in the mother's arms stretched out her burning little fingers "'and muttered in her hoarse dry throat his well-remembered name. "'It was the same family, sure enough.' "'altered by the salubrious air of Eden, but the same. "'This is a new sort of a morning call,' said Mark, drawing a long breath. "'It strikes one all of a heap. "'Wait a little bit. I'm a-coming round fast.' "'That'll do. These gentlemen ain't my friends. "'Are they on the visiting list of the house?' "'The inquiry referred to certain gaunt pigs who had walked in after him "'and were much interested in the heels of the family.' As they did not belong to the mansion, they were expelled by the two little boys. "'I ain't superstitious about toads,' said Mark, looking round the room. "'But if you could prevail upon the two or three I see in company to step out at the same time, my young friends, I think they'd find the open air refreshing. Not that I at all object to em. A very handsome animal is a toad,' said Mr. Tapley, sitting down upon a stool. "'Very spotted, very like a particular style of old gentleman about the throat.' "'Very bright-eyed, very cool, and very slippy. "'But one sees him to the best advantage out of doors, perhaps.' "'While pretending with such talk as this to be perfectly at his ease, "'and to be the most indifferent and careless of men, "'Mark Tapley had an eye on all around him. "'The wan and meagre aspect of the family, "'the changed looks of the poor mother, "'the fevered child she held in her lap, "'the air of great despondency and little hope on everything were plain to him.' and made a deep impression on his mind. He saw it all as clearly and as quickly as with his bodily eyes he saw the rough shelves supported by pegs driven between the logs of which the house was made, the flower cask in the corner serving also for a table, the blankets, spades, and other articles against the walls, the damp that blotched the ground or the crop of vegetable rottenness in every crevice of the hut. "'How is it that you have come here?' asked the man, when their first expressions of surprise were over. "'Why, we come by the steamer last night,' replied Mark. "'Our intention is to make our fortunes with punctuality and dispatch, and to retire upon our property as soon as ever it's realized. "'But how are you all? You're looking noble.' "'We are but sickly now,' said the poor woman, bending over her child. "'But we shall do better when we are seasoned to the place.' "'There are some here,' thought Mark, "'whose seasoning will last forever.' "'But he said cheerfully, "'Do better, to be sure you will. "'We shall all do better. "'What we've got to do is to keep up our spirits "'and be neighbourly. "'We shall come all right in the end, never fear. "'That reminds me, by the by, "'that my partner's all wrong just at present, "'and that I looked in to beg for him. "'I wish you'd come and give me your opinion of him, master.' "'That must have been a very unreasonable request on the part of Mark Tapley, "'with which, in their gratitude for his kind offices on board the ship, "'they would not have complied instantly. "'The man rose to accompany him without a moment's delay. "'Before they went, Mark took the sick child in his arms "'and tried to comfort the mother, but the hand of death was on it then, he saw. "'They found Martin in the house, lying wrapped up in his blanket on the ground. "'He was, to all appearance, very ill indeed,' "'and shook and shivered horribly, not as people do from cold, "'but in a frightful kind of spasm or convulsion that racked his whole body. 
Mark's friend pronounced his disease an aggravated kind of fever, accompanied with a gue, which was very common in those parts, and which he predicted would be worse to-morrow, and for many more to-morrows. He had had it himself off and on, he said, for a couple of years or so, but he was thankful that, while so many he had known had died about him, he had escaped with life. And with not too much of that, thought Mark, surveying his emaciated form, Eden forever. They had some medicine in their chest, and this man of sad experience showed Mark how and when to administer it, and how he could best alleviate the sufferings of Martin. His attentions did not stop there, for he was backwards and forwards constantly, and rendered Mark good service in all his brisk attempts to make their situation more endurable. Hope or comfort for the future he could not bestow. The season was a sickly one, the settlement a grave. His child died that night, and Mark, keeping the secret from Martin, helped to bury it beneath a tree next day. With all his various duties of attendance upon Martin, who became the more exacting in his claims the worse he grew, Mark worked out of doors early and late, and with the assistance of his friend and others laboured to do something with their land. Not that he had the least strength of heart or hope or steady purpose in so doing, beyond the habitual cheerfulness of his disposition, and his amazing power of self-sustainment, for within himself he looked on their condition as beyond all hope, and in his own words, came out strong in consequence. "'As to coming out as strong as I could wish, sir,' he confided to Martin, in a leisure moment, that is to say, one evening, while he was washing the linen of the establishment after a hard day's work, that I give up. It's a piece of good fortune as never is to happen to me, I see. "'Would you wish for circumstances stronger than these?' Martin retorted with a groan from underneath his blanket. "'Why, well, only see how easy they might have been stronger, sir,' said Mark. "'If it wasn't for the envy of that uncommon fortin of mine, which is always after me and tripping me up, the night we landed here, I thought things did look pretty jolly. I won't deny it. I thought they did look pretty jolly. How do they look now? groaned Martin. Ah, said Mark. Ah, to be sure, that's the question. How do they look now? On the very first morning of my going out, what do I do? Stumble on a family I know, who are constantly assisting of us in all sorts of ways from that time to this. That won't do, you know. That ain't what I'd a right to expect. If I had stumbled on a serpent and got bit, or stumbled on a first-rate patriot and got bowie-knifed, or stumbled on a lot of sympathizers with inverted shirt-collars and got made a lion of, I might have distinguished myself and earned some credit. As it is, the great object of my voyage is knocked on the head, so it would be wherever I went. How do you feel to-night, sir? Worse than ever, said poor Martin. That's something, returned Mark, but not enough. "'Nothing but being very bad myself and jolly to the last will ever do me justice.' "'In heaven's name don't talk of that,' said Martin, with a thrill of terror. "'What should I do, Mark, if you were taken ill?' Mr. Tapley's spirits appeared to be stimulated by this remark, although it was not a very flattering one. He proceeded with his washing in a brighter mood, and observed that his glass was arising. "'There's one good thing in this place, sir,' said Mr. Tapley, scrubbing away at the linen, as disposes me to be jolly, and that is that it's a regular little United States in itself. There's two or three American settlers left, and they coolly comes over one, even here, sir, as if it was the wholesomest and loveliest spot in the world. 
but they're like the cock that went and hid himself to save his life, and was found out by the noise he made. They can't help crowing. They was born to do it, and do it they must, whatever comes of it. Glancing from his work out at the door as he said these words, Mark's eyes encountered a lean person in a blue frock and a straw hat, with a short black pipe in his mouth and a great hickory stick studded all over with knots in his hand, who, smoking and chewing as he came along and spitting frequently, recorded his progress by a train of decomposed tobacco on the ground. "'Here's one on em, cried Mark. "'Hannibal Chollop!' "'Don't let him in,' said Martin feebly. "'He won't want any letting in,' replied Mark. "'He'll come in, sir,' which turned out to be quite true, for he did. His face was almost as hard and knobby as his stick, and so were his hands. His head was like an old black hearth-broom. He sat down on the chest with his hat on, and crossing his legs and looking up at Mark, said, without removing his pipe, "'Well, Mr. Coe, and how do you get along, sir?' It may be necessary to observe that Mr. Tapley had gravely introduced himself to all strangers by that name. "'Pretty well, sir, pretty well,' said Mark. "'If this ain't Mr. Chuzzlewit, ain't it?' exclaimed the visitor. "'How do you get along, sir?' Martin shook his head and drew the blanket over it involuntarily, for he felt that Hannibal was going to spit, and his eye, as the song says, was upon him. "'You need not regard me, sir,' observed Mr. Chollop complacently. "'I am fever-proof, and likewise a "'Mine was a more selfish motive,' said Martin, looking out again. "'I was afraid you were going to—' "'I can calculate my distance, sir,' returned Mr. Chollop, to an inch. "'With the proof of which happy faculty he immediately favoured him. "'I require, sir,' said Hannibal, Two foot clear in a circular direction, and can engage myself to keep within it. I have gone ten foot in a circular direction, but that was for a wager. "'I hope you won it, sir,' said Mark. "'Well, sir, I realized the stakes,' said Chollop. "'Yes, sir.' He was silent for a time, during which he was actively engaged in the formation of a magic circle round the chest on which he sat. When it was completed, he began to talk again. "'How do you like our country, sir?' he inquired, looking at Martin. "'Not at all,' was the invalid's reply. Chollop continued to smoke without the least appearance of emotion, until he felt disposed to speak again. That time at length arriving, he took his pipe from his mouth and said, "'I am not surprised to hear you say so. It requires an elevation and a preparation of the intellect. The mind of man must be prepared for freedom, Mr. Coe.' He addressed himself to Mark, because he saw that Martin, who wished him to go, being already half mad with feverish irritation, which the droning voice of this new horror rendered almost insupportable, had closed his eyes and turned on his uneasy bed. "'A little bodily preparation wouldn't be amiss either, would it, sir?' said Mark, in the case of a blessed old swamp like this. "'Do you consider this a swamp, sir?' inquired Chollop gravely. "'Why, yes, sir,' returned Mark. "'I haven't a doubt about it myself.' "'The sentiment is quite European,' said the Major, "'and does not surprise me. "'What would your English millions say to such a swamp in England, sir?' "'They'd say it was an uncommon nasty one, I should think,' said Mark, "'and that they would rather be inoculated for fever in some other way.' "'European,' remarked Chollop, with sardonic pity, "'quite European.' And there he sat, 
silent and cool as if the house were his, smoking away like a factory chimney. Mr. Chollop was, of course, one of the most remarkable men in the country, but he really was a notorious person besides. He was usually described by his friends in the South and West as a splendid sample of our native raw material, sir, and was much esteemed for his devotion to rational liberty, for the better propagation whereof he usually carried a brace of revolving pistols in his coat-pocket with seven barrels apiece. He also carried, amongst other trinkets, a sword-stick, which he called his tickler, and a great knife, which, for he was a man of a pleasant turn of humour, he called ripper, in allusion to its usefulness as a means of ventilating the stomach of any adversary in a close contest. He had used these weapons with distinguished effect in several instances, all duly chronicled in the newspapers, and was greatly beloved for the gallant manner in which he had jobbed out the eye of one gentleman as he was in the act of knocking at his own street door. Mr. Chollop was a man of a roving disposition, and, in any less advanced community, might have been mistaken for a violent vagabond. But his fine qualities, being perfectly understood and appreciated in those regions where his lot was cast, and where he had many kindred spirits to consort with, he may be regarded as having been born under a fortunate star, which is not always the case with a man so much before the age in which he lives. Preferring, with a view to the gratification of his tickling and ripping fancies, to dwell upon the outskirts of society, and in the more remote towns and cities, he was in the habit of emigrating from place to place, and establishing in each some business, usually a newspaper, which he presently sold, for the most part closing the bargain by challenging, stabbing, pistoling, or gouging the new editor, before he had quite taken possession of the property. He had come to Eden on a speculation of this kind, but had abandoned it, and was about to leave. He always introduced himself to strangers as a worshipper of freedom, was the consistent advocate of lynch law and slavery, and invariably recommended, both in print and speech, the tarring and feathering of any unpopular person who differed from himself. He called this planting the standard of civilization in the wilder gardens of my country. End of chapter 33, part 1